As you remain standing, let us now hear from God's Word from 1 Chronicles chapter 18. 1 Chronicles chapter 18. This is the Word of the Living God. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah Hamath, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadeazer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the, uh, the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son Hadoram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Tau, and he sent all sorts of articles of gold, of silver, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. And Abishai, the son of Zoriah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Shavshah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, were over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief officials in the service of the king. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father, your word is mighty. Now by your spirit, take it 
and apply it to our hearts, to your glory, and for the edification of your church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, in order to properly understand and apply the passage that is before us this morning, we need to understand it against some background information. God is a God of the covenant. God made a special, particular covenant with Israel through Moses. He made a covenant with them, particularly as a geopolitical entity, that is to say, as a nation-state. He commanded Israel, as a holy political nation, to take up the sword in the name of the Lord and to smite all the other unholy nations with it. Israel, you'll recall, under Joshua, was to conquer the holy land of Canaan. And while Israel saw some successes throughout its history, ultimately, as we know all too well, it would finally fail. And rather than conquering the land, the land would conquer them. David is portrayed in our passage here as a conqueror, a conqueror of nations and of the land. There is, in fact, a lot of violence in our passage, as there is in the Bible, more generally speaking. But David is doing well in his conquest. He is doing what Israel should have been doing all along. But this passage can be shocking to us today and to a modern audience. What we have here looks something like ethnic cleansing. And it is, in fact, an attempt to bring complete destruction to the nations that are not themselves Israelites. So we might struggle with the question of the matter of application. How does this apply to me? How does this apply to the church today? Should we conquer like King David? Should we take up the sword in the name of the Lord and to do likewise, cleansing our country of all those unholy pagan peoples? Now, to answer these questions, we need to tackle the matter here this morning in three parts. First of all, we'll talk about how David subdues his enemies. Secondly, we'll talk about how the better David conquers his enemies. And third, we will talk about the church conquering its enemies. First of all, then, David subdues his enemies. We see here that God brings David's enemies to their knees through the mighty power that God raised up in David's army and by the power of their swords. His enemies are forced into submission to David. They have been coerced by sword, by power, and by all of the intimidations that this world can bring upon them to bow the knee before David. But what is more, ultimately, we know that it is the Lord who does this. There are two places in this chapter that are significant for understanding David's victories. First of all, verse 6, where it says, And the Lord 
gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 13, you will note very similarly. And it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The emphasis upon the Lord who gives the victory. This is a kind of golden age for Israel. We've mentioned already how David's reign is the climactic reign of any king in the history of Israel. Things are going well for David and for the nation of Israel. The Lord is blessing them by his grace. You see, in this chapter, we see all those pesky nations that before gave Israel so much trouble, so much affliction, so much temptation to worship other gods. Here, they are now finally subdued before Israel. For the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And we see this, for instance, in verse 1. There we see the Philistines are finally conquered. The Philistines, perhaps the worst of them all, thorns in the side of Israel for centuries. And now, finally, it says here, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. The same happens in verse 2, only with Moab. They too, Moab, are subdued. They are made slaves, and they bring tribute, we are told here, to David. This tribute is significant. It's not just a gift. Matter of fact, it's not really a gift at all. It's not a present. It's not the kind of thing that you bring uh, an ambassador or an emissary some token of appreciation for the other nation's leader. When you bring a tribute in the ancient Near East to a king, it means that you have said that you belong to that king. It is almost like a tax more than a gift. You recognize that king to whom you bring the tribute as having authority over you. Moab is here made a vassal nation under Israel. A subdued, subjected, servantile nation under the authority of Israel and her king. And so as we mentioned in the past, David, God's anointed one, is to rule here not just one nation, that is to say Israel, but to subdue all nations under the divine rule of Yahweh, the God of Israel. We see more of this in verses 3 through 8. There we see that David defeats the king of Zobah as well as the Syrians. He takes as spoil the king's army. But notice here, and this is significant, what David does with the horses and chariots. David hamstrung all the horses but ten of them. Do you know why? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God in the law gives instruction for how Israel's righteous king is to behave. And there in Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king shall not take possession for himself many horses. 
to not acquire a great deal of gold and silver, lest the king be mighty in his own eyes and trust in his chariots and his wealth rather than in the name of the Lord. And so David, being here a righteous king of Israel, resists the temptation of keeping the spoil that he got from the opposing army, and he trusts in the Lord, obeys his laws, and he keeps only a hundred of the horses. And so in verse 6, he also defeats the Syrians and makes them a slave state. David's conquering nations, he subdues them to God's holy nation Israel through the power of the sword. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see more victory for David. Only this victory comes without bloodshed. King Tao, from a distance, beholds the might of David. And understandably, he's, he's intimidated, isn't he? So Tao sends his son to David to bring him tribute. And once again, this This tribute that is here offered to the king of Israel is not a gift, but it is a sign that Tao has subjected himself to the authority of David and has willingly become his vassal. But what David does in verse 11 is significant. Just as he did not collect to himself many horses, so likewise, rather than hoarding the precious metals that he would have access to here, he dedicates them to the Lord instead. All this gold, along with the bronze mentioned back in verse 8, goes towards the temple project that Solomon, his son, later would complete. David didn't collect wealth for himself, but he collected it in order that it might be used to the glory of God in his earthly temple as it was arrayed with golden splendor, in order that that temple might be an earthly picture to the people of God of that heavenly majesty where God dwells in a temple not made with human hands. Verses 12 through 13, we see that Abishai, the former military leader of Saul's army, who back in chapter 12 defected to David's side, comes along, and under David's supervision, he defeats the Edomites. He places garrisons in Edom, another clear sign of David subduing and taking over the ruling, not just of one nation, the nation of Israel, but all the nations that were around him. Finally, verses 14 through 17, we continue to see this theme of David subduing his enemies when we see David build his administration. He surrounds himself with great men, men who are dedicated to the work, military, generals, recorders, priests, secretaries. For as we see here, David ruled with justice and equity, which, by the way, was a rare commodity in those days. Usually, as we know from the history of Israel, when a king ascended to the throne and gained power, it would go immediately to his head. He would oppress the people. He would rule unrighteously. 
and lead Israel into spiritual apostasy. But David is here clearly set apart, different than the others. Among all the others, he is relative to them an ideal king, a different king, a righteous king, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Secondly, the better David conquers his enemies. Now, as we move towards application of this passage, things can become challenging. Surely you are challenged to wonder how this applies to your life and to the life of the church. And we might wonder, perhaps this passage gets applied directly to us and how we are to deal with our enemies. But we err if we think that we are David. As if there were some sort of a one-to-one correlation between David and us in this passage. I'm not denying that there are correlations between King David and, and us, but not with regard to what we find here. As if somehow David were a type or a picture of us. If somehow we, like David, are to subdue our enemies as if we are to use the force and the power and the things of this world to conquer unbelievers around us. As if we take up arms, as David did, to cleanse our country of our political and spiritual foes. Maybe we say, well, that's ridiculous. I would never think about doing that. Taking up a sword or killing my foes. I would never think about that. But would you think of maybe a parallel, different way, a more peaceful way, a less violent way to try to coerce the subjection of your enemies? Maybe not literal weapons, but maybe other kinds of means of coercion, political ones, legislation, ways of forcing our neighbors to conform to our way of thinking and our lives. But we need to be quickly dispelled of that idea because David is not a picture of us. Israel is not a picture of our country. David, as king of Israel, is not a model for rulers today. And herein lies the great problem of so-called Christendom. That is how texts like these were, in the medieval days, read and applied for the Pope. David was a type of the papal office. For the emperor of the so-called Holy Roman Empire, David is a type of imperial authority over Europe. And as David used force to subdue pagan nations, this way of thinking goes, so likewise now the pope or the emperor is to use the sword to force Christianity upon the populace, be baptized or die. But David was not a picture of the Pope or the Emperor. 
So it is imperative as we approach application of this passage for us to realize that we don't live in a theocracy the way that David did. Because, after all, no nation on earth is Israel, and David is not our king. That is because we do not live any longer under the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. No longer do we reside under that administration. Rather, we live under the new covenant. We live not under David, but for those who are true believers. Within the church of Jesus Christ, we realize that we live under King Jesus alone. And we do not live in the kingdom of Israel, but we live in the kingdom of God. For Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth, John 18. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is another worldly kingdom. For our citizenship is found in heaven where Christ is. And the weapons that we use to protect that kingdom is commensurate with the nature of that kingdom which is altogether spiritual and heavenly. To establish Christ's worldwide dominion, Christ uses weapons not of this world, but the weapons that Jesus uses to establish his dominion over all the earth are spiritual, otherworldly weapons commensurate with the nature of his kingdom. And so, David is not a picture of you, of me, or of any political leader. But David pictures and he foreshadows King Jesus. King Jesus is subduing right now for himself a people. He has since the beginning of his ministry, and he continues no less to do so today. He is subduing for himself a people from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For the heavenly nation to which Christ has called you is a nation that transcends all political and geographical bounds. It is not restricted to one particular nation-state, but it transcends them all and it includes them all. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation, tribe, and language and people. And herein, particularly in this last verse, do we see the weapon of Jesus wielded against his enemies. It is not the weapons of steel. It is not the weapons of physical force or coercion. It is not a great army to conquer through bloodshed or by legislation. But the weapons used by Jesus to subdue the whole earth by which he is to establish his dominion and his power and his glory is the proclamation of the eternal gospel. Third, 
The church conquers its enemies. The enemy of the church, the enemy that has already been defeated by Christ, the enemy who will be defeated by Christ when he comes again, is not the Moabites, the Philistines, or the Syrians. But it is the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is the powers and the principalities of the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. It is the world with all of its opposition to God and his people. It is our own sin within which wars against the Spirit. And the way our thrice enemy is fought and overcome is through the eternal gospel. And this way, this way, this weapon of the eternal gospel is far mightier than the sword or any other methods of coercion. Doesn't even begin to compare. You can't even put them in the same category. The power of the gospel is wholly other than the gospel than the power of the sword. Let it be heard. Let it be proclaimed that Christ has come, that God himself in human flesh has come to save. By his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, those would believe upon him shall be saved. Saved from death, saved from their sins, saved from the just wrath of a holy and righteous God that is to come. What is your role then in all of this? This proclamation, this eternal gospel. Because after all, we recognize that the proclamation of the gospel takes human work. It does. Jesus could have stayed on earth and said, he'll do all the preaching. He'll do all the evangelizing. He'll directly do all of the gathering and the pastoring. But he ordained, and this is a great mystery, why he would do this. He ordained fallen, frail, sinful human beings saved by grace like you and me to carry out this great work. The building of the kingdom takes effort. It takes resources. It takes prayer. But make no mistake about it, it is the single most important work that you or I can do. This is because the results of this work is not temporary. It is not a temporary beating back of the enemy. It is not a temporary building project. What it is, is an everlasting one with everlasting fruit and results. And this is your work. Christ's kingdom is spreading. His dominion is growing. What will you do about it? Will you support the proclamation of the word? This month, the thank offering is upon us, and the opportunities for the people of God and the church abound. Will you pray for the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world? Will you invite others to hear the word? Will you tell others about Jesus? There is so much that you and we can do. There is so much work to be done right up to the moment when King Jesus comes back for us. You cannot force anyone to become a Christian, but you can bring them 
the everlasting gospel. And in so doing, we know that while all of this takes, takes effort, takes ability, blood, sweat, tears, prayer, battle, fight, war, the results, what a great thing of comfort this is, the results don't depend upon us or our works. The results are completely dependent upon our gracious God because He alone is the one who can bring the increase. May He do so to the glory of His name and the good of His church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to this end that we might take up this mightier sword in our hands and we might wage war with it for the glory of Christ and the edification of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.